All right, we're returning to our study on 1 John. So we, we're taking turns between the Old Testament and New Testament, so we're back to our New Testament study in the letter of 1 John. And our sermon today is titled, God Manifested in Love. God Manifested in Love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 12. So if you haven't gotten the outline of the sermon and some questions that you can take home and, and meditate. I just put it in there uh, to help facilitate your study of the word throughout the week. But um, as I already see, the, the love is in the air. It is what we see everywhere you go. It is that time of the year that you get in the grocery store and there's bouquet of flowers, rows of it all over in the entry of grocery stores, the hot pink and red hearts everywhere you go, this, the heart-shaped pillows, heart-shaped cookies, heart-shaped chocolates, heart-shaped cakes, and even heart-shaped hearts. We are at the dawn of Valentine's Day, and when people are all about manifestations of affection, of love of sorts, love of a parent, love for a child, romantic love, friendly love. And I think it is interesting what love is through the eyes of children. In the last decade or so, a group of uh, professionals posed the following question to a group of four to eight-year-olds. What does love mean? The answers they got, as one researcher said, were broader but deeper than anyone could have imagined. Chrissy is a six-year-old. She says, love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them, making them give them any of theirs. Terry, age four, says, love is what makes you smile when you're tired. Danny, age seven, says, love is when mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure it tastes okay. Bobby, age five, says, love is what that is in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Noel, age seven, says, love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt and then he wears it every day. <laughs> Marianne, age four, love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him alone all day. When you love somebody, your eyeglasses go up and down and little stars come out of you. Karen, age seven. <laughs> Jessica, age seven, says, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you meant it, you should say it a lot. People forget. And then Rebecca, age eight, she says, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore, so my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. Well, when it's one thing to get a child's perspective on love, but it's even better to get God's perspective. Several times the Bible gives us his thoughts on love, and we find it in the Songs of Solomon we mentioned this morning. 1 Corinthians 13, and here in 1 John chapter 4. So open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, 
We're going to read from verse 7 through 14. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we come before you, the source of love, the God creator of the whole universe would descend and become men in flesh and love us in a deeper, most meaningful way that can anyone could ever do. Lord, we thank you for your word, and I pray, Father, that you would use this to instruct us, to challenge us to think beyond ourselves about your love, to revel, to feast in your love for us so that we might love others as you, as you have loved us. We're so thankful for your word. Lord, keep us from distractions. Um, use me in spite of my weaknesses and, and help us, Lord, to to learn and to be transformed by the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, in our study in 1 John, we've seen that John chapter 3, verse 23 summarizes that this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another just as he had loved us. So he summarized God's commands in terms of believing Christ and loving one another. He has unfolded in Chapter 4, verse six, 1 through 6, some implications of believing Christ is by encouraging us to test the spirits. That's what we covered last time we talked about First John, we studied the First John. He instructed the believers in Asia Minor how to identify these false teachers. Now, he seemingly turns abruptly the subject of mutual love, but this is also a test for those that know God. John has addressed the subject love already in chapter 2, verse 7 through 11 as an indication that those who walk in the light, they will love. Chapter 3, verses 11 to 24, he sees love as an evidence that one is a child of God. And yet in this section, there he provides the fullest treatment of what love is all about. Each time the test is more searching and in this third treatment, John is concerned to relate the love which you should be in us, not to be the true light which is already shining, nor the eternal life of which it is the evidence, but that to God's very nature of love. And to his loving activity in Christ and in us. The catchphrase of the paragraph is reflexive. Love one another. It occurs three times 
in this passage, in verse 7, as an encouragement, let us love one another. In verse 11, we also ought to love one another as a statement of responsibility. And then as a hypothesis on verse 12, that if we love one another as a condition. The word love is the word agape in Greek. And, and it dominates this passage up to the end of the letter. It appears over 30 times in this text. Some have even said that John is the expect, the, the expert on this subject. Paul was the apostle of faith, and Peter was the apostle of hope. James was the apostle of good works. And John is the apostle of love. He even brags about that when he talks in, in the gospel, the apostle whom Jesus loved. In the New Testament, agape is normally used to refer to the quality of a warm regard for and an interest in another. Is this deep esteem and affection, regard and love without limitation to the very intimate relationships. It is used sometimes to also refer to a common meal eaten by early Christians in connection to their worship, that they used to call this the agape feast or the, the love feast, where they would share a meal together, much, much more like what we do in our potlucks, um, for the purpose of fostering and expressing mutual affection and concern, a fellowship meal, a love fest. Maybe we should rename our, wait, there we go, Eric. We, we did find a name for our potluck, finally. It's going to be our, our, our agape potluck. <laughs> in our culture, a love is too much often understood as selfish and even in sexual terms. But the word of God paints a completely different picture. In these pages, we, we, we just read it as jumping out to us that this kind of love is a sacrificial and it is a supernatural love that comes from God. So in our outline here, we have three points. Love has its origin in God. Love is seen in the atoning death of Jesus. And lastly, love is perfected in us when we love others. So first, love has its origin in God. And we'll see that in our sub-point here that loving others gives evidence that we have been born of God. Loving others give us evidence that we have been born of God. John starts his um, exhortation or encouragement with the endearing terminology, the beloved. It's a, a common construction connected to the verb agapao or, or the agape, the love. He prepares them to receive the encouragement. He gives the encouragement to take his ex on his expression of affection with love one another. Why are we to love one another? Well, the first reason that John gives us is because love is from God. Real love, this true love or selfless love, sacrificial kind of love, always has its source in God. And whoever loves with a God kind of love gives evidence that they have been born of God. Regeneration or the new birth or being born again unites the spiritually dead and selfish hearts with God's living and loving hearts so that his life becomes our life and our love, his love, our love. 
just as a child tends to copy the traits of a parent or, or both of them, so does the love of God in his children. You know, I recall growing up um, with my parents and just mocking my dad for some of his, in my mind, was quirkiness. So I, I just remember whenever he was having a conversation and we'd have all these stories of this, his childhood and, you know, going to the details and, well, oh, here we go again. And as, you know, I started aging and I started realizing, boy, I am becoming my father. <laughs> I mean, he's storytelling on and on about stories. You see, children will sound like their parents because they live with them. And it is inevitable that attitudes are learned. So it is with God and his children. So love has its very origin in sourcing God and is evidence that we have been born of God and are part of God's family of lovers. The rationale given for the love command is that love is a defining characteristic of God. Therefore, those who have been born of God are also defined by their loves for others like father, like son, as the saying goes. In fact, exhibiting the love characteristic of the father evidences a personal knowledge of God. In this way, everyone who loves is defined. It is not everyone who loves in whatever way pleases him or her who has been born of God, but everyone who loves as God defines love. Because we hear in our world today, right, that any form of love goes. No. God is the definition of love. His definition of love is pure, is holy, and it is just. I want you to note that it says that those that have, that um, everyone that loves is born of God or is begotten of God. This in the Greek text is actually in the, perfect tense denoting that the new birth precedes love and this knowledge that they have from God. So someone needs to be born again to have this true, genuine kind of love. So the second point here, this loving others gives us evidence that we know God. Not only those who love with a God love, like love, give evidence that they have been born of God, but they also demonstrate it in an ongoing life, habit of life, that they know God. They don't simply know about God. They know him intimately and personally as a father. As in chapter 3, verse 1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, and that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. This unique way of loving comes from God. Verse 8 takes up the, the last thought in verse 7. It says that the person who does not love has not known God because God is love. John, John structures his remarks in verse 7 and 8 in a way that explicitly underlines this aspect of the matter. I, I was really puzzled when I was studying this passage and I was reading different commentaries, trying to get to the real bottom of it because this is what we call a chiastic structure when the, the, 
the verses, they're parallel to each other, and one complements the other, and John has a lot of this where he talks about the dark and the light, those that are born of God, the children of God and the children of Satan. And then here, he's also doing that kind of comparison, and then one is supposed to mirror the other. Well, in our passage, we, we might expect to read, he says in verse 7, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And the parallel is on verse 18. In verse 8, he says, one who does not love, um, we would expect for him to say, does not know God and it is not born of God. But it doesn't say that. Instead, it reads, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, and the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. He didn't say that they're not born of God. In the place where one might expect is not born of God, one simply finds God is love. This is precisely what one would expect if John did not maintain that the new birth infallibly and inexorably produces love. We remember that the tests of faith, they give us guidance to know if we are in the faith, if we are true believers. Those are indications, but they are not foolproof because you can say, what about unbelievers? We know that even non-Christians can express love in their own way. Some unbelievers have tremendous demonstration of affection and of care for, the, for their loved ones, their sacrificial way that they treat their loved ones, some of which might be quite touching. Never forget that all persons are made and they're created in God's image. So all persons, in spite of the depravity and sinfulness, will give reflections of the one whose image they bear. Furthermore, God's grace and goodness is shared in in some measure with the whole of his creation. However, I agree with the commentator Howard Marshall when he says, human love, however noble, however highly motivated, falls short if it refuses to include the father and son as the supreme objects of its affection. You see, when unbelievers love, they, they, they love the other person, and God is not at the center. He's not the love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. They do the love your neighbor, and I don't even know if it is as yourself. They might do have self-interest love. Such love, unfortunately, fails to honor the greatest love commandment of all, which is the command to love God with all they are. Our love to others is an expression of our love to God. But how about about believers? Is it possible for a Christian to be unloving? In a commentator, puts it this way, that the the God of love begets children with the inherited ability to love. In John's thinking, it would not be possible for a non-Christian to show true selfless love until he has come to the new birth. With the new birth comes, in John's mind, the inherited ability to love. Yet, even then, love is not an automatic matter. It has to receive deliberate attention from the Christian. John is both demanding and gracious at the same time. He lives with this antinomy, this um, paradox. We read in chapter 2, verse 1, what does he say? 
It's kind of a parallel with this whole loving thing here. It says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So he says we shouldn't sin. But yet, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So he, he provides an alternative way when we are not loving. Anyone who fails to love contradicts his new birth. And yet, the contradiction of the new birth is a possibility. And John says nothing to imply that it is impossible for a Christian to lack love. It would actually be self-righteous of our own to think that we never lack love, that we love perfectly. That's why he's encouraging us to love because we fail to do so. The person who does not love may still be a Christian, for every Christian has had hard times when he has not shown love. But John is not denying that anyone's Christian conversion. His point is rather that at the point of their life, at this point in their life, no knowledge of God is operating. That's why he says that he does not know God. John explicitly does not say that the lack of love is a proof of not having been born of God. He cannot say that, for that would imply that it is impossible for a Christian not to love. John knows only too well that some of his little children have fallen, has fallen in lovelessness, and yet he does not deny the reality of their first love. As in most of, of, of his, in most of first, the test of love should lead one to humble self-examination. Am I loving the way that God wants me to love with a sacrificial kind of love? We can actually see a similar pattern in the book of Revelation. Let's, let's just look real quickly. I'm not going to read the whole text, but Revelation chapter 2 See how the Lord reveals himself to the churches and how he brings that, this reminder. Revelation chapter 2. And let's take a look at verse 4 here. What does he say? But this I have against you, that you have first, that you have left your first love. They were believers but they left their first love. Verse five, what did he say? Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the deeds that you did at first, the deeds of love. Chapter three, and we're looking at um, verse two. Wake up, strengthen the things that remain. What are the things that remain? which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in my sight of my God. So remember what you have received and what you have heard, and keep it and repent. Verse 11, the, the church in Philadelphia. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have. So all of us believers have this initial contact that we have with the Lord, the things that we learned at first, the love he has demonstrated toward us, now he has given us an opportunity to love and to repent and go back to the love that he has instructed and give us the ability to love. Now, let us take a, uh, take a look at this statement that God is love. The truth that God is love complements the other beautiful statements made about God's nature in the Bible. 
You know, we have probably heard this before. God is a spirit. John 4.24 says that God is a spirit. God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12.29. God is light, 1 John 1.5. God is true, 1 John 5.20. God by nature then is love, and therefore he defines love, but love does not define him. You know, God is love does not equal love is God. I've heard people saying that before. This is a form of pantheistic thinking that God is something other than his personhood. It's, any, it's no more wrong to say that grass is green and green is grass. That doesn't make any sense. Love does not define God, but God defines love. This is John's beautiful logic. God is love. Number one, two, those who have been born of God know God and are God's children. And third, God's children have God's nature. God's children, therefore, will love because love source is in God. And as we love like God loves, we give evidence that we are connected to the source. We demonstrate by a life of love that we know God. You know, John MacArthur reflects on this reality that God is love and explains his providence. It orchestrates all the circumstances of life and all their wonder, beauty, and even difficulty to reveal many evidences of his love. We need to look around and see God's love everywhere. Psalm 145, how about we open there? Psalm 145. It is in the essence of God to love and to demonstrate this love really to the whole universe. 145 says, we're looking at verse 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, is slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all of his works. This general love that God has for all mankind, he expressed this love through the common grace. As part of this, God reveals his love through his compassion. Primarily in that, he delays the final judgment against unrepentant sinners. This compassion is further expressed in the myriad of warnings that he has to sinners. I mean, if God wasn't patient and loving toward people, at the moment that we sin, with the snap of his fingers, we would be condemned. And yet, he does not do that. He gives us chance. He sends preachers. He sends evangelists to tell us about God's love for us. This is a general love, however, is limited to this life. After death, unrepentant sinners would experience God's final wrath and judgment for all eternity. But God has a special perfect and eternal love that he lavishes on everyone who believe him. The apostle John aptly characterized the love that Jesus displayed to the apostles when he wrote at the beginning of the upper room narrative in John 13:1 he says that having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end. You know, like how the NIV translates it he says that Having loved his own who were in the world, 
he now showed them the full extent of his love. He showed them the full extent of his love. I mean, you think about it. Those are slow disciples to understand God's promises. It's stubborn, doubting, fickle. And yet he showed their love, his love to the end, to the full extent, to the point of dying for them on the cross. This is what we read in Ephesians chapter 2. For those of us that have been attending the uh, fellowship groups, you remember this. God being rich in mercy, being because of the great love which he had loved us, and even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together in Christ, by grace have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that the age to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. My dear friend, I want to remind you to revel in the love of God. Think about his protection day in and day out. Think about the, the blessings that you have of having a warm house. At times, I know that we struggle to see, God, this is not what I envisioned for my life, but this is your love for me, that you want me to go through this trial so that I may grow. It is a loving Father that gives me what I need, not necessarily what I want. It is his loving hand that keeps us from having what we want. We have been studying 1 Samuel, that the people wanted control over their lives. They wanted a king, and God gave them a king, and it wasn't a good one. So even when he doesn't give us what we want, he gives us everything that we really need. Now, moving on here, love is seen in the atoning death of Jesus. You see, in God's vocabulary, it's not a blank statement. Love compels him to action. I remember this conversation I had with a friend of mine in seminary um, that used to be a missionary in Papua New Guinea. I think for me, this became really clear when he was talking about uh, how they did translation of the Bible, you know, and how they get... Um, they study a word and are trying to, to convey that idea to, um, to the people in that language. So for this tribal uh, people in Papua New Guinea, and he worked with the translation of the Bible, the natives, um, the biblical love made perfect sense to them. You know, let me explain, because in the West we say, I love you, or she loves me. This didn't make sense for the, to the natives, because in Papua New Guinea, they would immediately ask, so what? Loving in that language was all, always followed by an action. So I love you. Look at the bread that I baked to you, <laughs> baked for you. So when they heard 1 John 3.16, for the first time, it clicked to them. For God so loved the world. Why? So that. So that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Amen and amen. It is one thing to talk about love. It is something else to show that love. The Christian God is not just talking, not a talking God. He's an acting God, a doing God, and a serving God. 
You see, when I'm counseling, I often meet hurting people that they wander. Am I, um, does anyone love me? I have seen people suffering. They have been abused by their spouses or abandoned and lied to, betrayed, mistreated, and deeply hurting. Sometimes you too can, become, can be like this. You can barely ask the questions, but you still do. Does anyone love me? Will I ever be loved? The good news of the gospel provides is a resounding yes to those questions. You are loved, and you'll always be loved by a God who is love and who wants to shower you, to overflow you with his love. How do we know? He sent his son. He did something. It wasn't just the word of his mouth. To make sure that you don't miss this, John says it twice, that he sent his son, and he gives two reasons why he sent his son. One, he sent his son that we might live, in verse 9, and that he sent his son so that he may die, on verse 10. So it is put in display for all to see, it says here in verse 9, that by this, the love of God was manifested to us. This word manifested in our translation is the word revealed or made clear, put on display. This love of God was put in public display among us. We did not just hear about it. John says it, talks about in the beginning of his letter, we were eyewitnesses of him. Here's what we know. God sent his only, his one and only son to the world and he did so for the purpose so that we might live through him. This um, only begotten is a translation of um, a Greek term that is used five times in the New Testament. It is all of reference to Jesus. It means a unique, he was a one of a kind son. There was, there was only one like this son. That's what we just read in First John and in John 3.16. God sent his son from heaven because there is where he was. In eternal, internal existence, his father and in loving communion through the Holy Spirit. God was not lonely in need of compassion and he thought, oh, I'm gonna create people so I'm not lonely. No, he, he had perfect communion within the Trinity. The father fellowshiped with the son and the son fellowshiped with the father and the spirit with the son. Perfect love comes from God because God is a loving God. No, our God was not lonely. He was loving. He was loving, and he sent his son into the, ter- the enemy territory, into the world of sinners on a search and a rescue mission. He came looking for us even when we're not looking for him. And why did he come? He came so that we might live through him. The worlds of humanity was dead with no hope, no life. Remember reading Ephesians 2, chapter 2, and verse 1 through 3, we, we read how sad it is our state apart from Christ. We were with no hope in this world, with no nationality in God's country. We didn't have a citizenship in God's country. We were away from his promises, and yet God sent his son. What does it mean to live through him? It means to enjoy fellowship with the Father, with the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It means to walk in the light, like John says in the beginning of his letter. Enjoy fellowship with one another. Confess 
and receive forgiveness of sin. Walk as he walked and abiding the word and his will. Know the truth and be confident that in his second coming, we're not going to be shying away, but we'll be confident in him. Then verse 10, he sent, he's, um, in this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and son, sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. You see, God did not send an angel. He sent his son. He did not, he did not send his son to live. He sent his son to die. And this was not an ordinary death. It was simply the death of a martyr. It wasn't the, the death of a martyr. It was the death of a savior dying in our place and bearing our punishment. Love consists in this. He's pointing to what follows, that God loved, um, that before we loved God, he loved us first. In fact, he loved us when we spurred him. He proved his love by sending his son and Paul said the same thing in Romans 5, 8. says, but God proves his love for us in what? That, we are, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, Paul's logic was, if you, being a sinner, you, you, you might dare to die for someone. You might give your life in sacrifice for someone that you love. But rarely, someone would die for someone that they don't love. And that's precisely what Christ did. Not that he loved us, that we didn't deserve his love. He died for a person that did not deserve his love. So God sent his love to be a propitiation. It's an interesting word that is used now a second time in this letter. The word propitiation is a rich theological term in one of the most important in the Bible. It is used three times in the New Testament in the context of Jesus' death on the cross. Romans 3.25, he says, whom God displayed publicly, speaking of Christ, as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Hebrews 2.17 also used the word propitiation. It says that therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God and to make, What? propitiation for the sins of the people. And in 1 John 2, 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sin. What does this mean? The word means to turn away the wrath of God means through, through the means of an offering. You see, in the, in the ancient pagan religions, human worshipers made the offering to appease an angry deity. But unlike those false gods, God's anger has nothing to do with capriciousness. God's anger is not a matter of God losing his temper. There's no loss of control when God is angry. As a human anger, generally, it is never an explosion. It is never unpredictable. It is never without warning. It is one of God's perfections, just as his love, so is his anger. It will be displayed in the day of his wrath. It is roused by sin and especially the sin of idolatry. God's anger is purposeful reaction to sin and evil by means of which he wishes to express his repulsion to sin and call people to repentance. Exodus 32.10 says that God, God says, let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot. 
See, God's anger is purposeful. It is a decision. God's anger is a holy anger. It burns when holiness is scorned. God's anger is injured love. Despite all of his holy revulsion against sin, despite the fact that his nature rises up as hate in hatred against all that is contrary to his will, he found a way for us to be his children. How can we deal with God's anger? In some mysterious way, God punished our sins in Jesus so that they might be punished, so that they, they not, may not be punished in us. So that's what propitiation means. It means that in some mysterious ways, God's anger against sin fell upon Jesus instead of on me. Because God sent his son to be a propitiation, God does not reject me on the account of my sins. For the cross, by the cross, he rejected Jesus instead. The Christian is delivered from God's anger. And though God can show fatherly displeasure when the Christian sins, yet the Christian is delivered from all time from the realm of sin and judgment. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because that propitiation, that sacrifice, has been made once and for all. John Stott says that um, in this work talking about the cross of Christ, it says, for the essence of sin is substituting men himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be, but God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. You know, one of the most beautiful pictures of this is Isaiah 53. I think we should open there and read it. We're so forgetful. We don't realize that the love of God is made so much more glorious and more attractive to us when we reflect what his anger um, and what our sin deserved. Isaiah 53, in chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, says, Surely, our griefs, our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he cared. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed. Just picture, this is God's anger, God's wrath that you and I deserved, that we broke his law, and yet the innocent Jesus the faultless lamb of God was slain on our behalf. He was crushed for our iniquities and the chastisement for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. Now I want you to skip all the way and see that by, the oppre by oppression and judgment he was taken away as for his generation he was considered and he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom he was struck. But it says that eventually, in verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, 
if he would render himself as a guilt offering, there you have it, the atonement, the propitiation, the guilt offering. And the consequence, he will see his offspring, all of those that were born of God, and he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now, Jesus enabled us to have this relationship with the Father. He is the ultimate expression of his love for us, that he applicated God's anger towards sin. Oh, how we need to ponder on this love that God has for us, the love of God. It is a love for which one can give no reason in ourselves. It is unstaggeringly undeserved. It is the love that a mighty conqueror that overcomes a problem of sin, which was also so great a matter. It is a problem even for God himself. It is love, the reasons for which are in God alone. The Lord set his love on you because the Lord loves you, Deuteronomy 7, 7. It is this which is inexplicable, causeless, spontaneous, and free. It is God's generosity, his willingness to give and give and give, his willingness to pay any price in order to give. It is his identifying with the other person, his taking thought about all their deepest needs. It is his determination to deal kindly with us. No matter what we do, it is his determination to take the initiative, his reluctance to stop speaking to us, his purpose to overcome every barrier He's freeing us from our deepest predicaments. He's resolved to rescue us from the plights and distresses and anarchies that flow from our ingrained and inherited sinfulness. This is his propitiation. Now, finally, we get here that to the fact that this love that was given to us through Christ is perfected in us when we love others. So closing there on the final point, beloved, God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. And if you love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. For a second time, we see here John addressing them as beloved. He's not just transitioning to a new subject this time. Rather, he wants us to build on what it was previously taught in the previous verses, from this greater to the lesser argument. So let me paraphrase it. If God loves us in this way, and he does, just look at the cross of Christ, then we ought naturally, out of, the gospel, out of gospel gratitude and connection to the very source of love, love one another. The cross of Christ compels believers to such love. As John exhorted his readers, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The apostle really just restated his admonition from 3.16 where he says, we know love by this, that he laid his life, laid down his life for us, and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. No one has ever savingly believed in Christ's atoning sacrifice and granted eternal life can return permanently to a self-centered lifestyle. 
if you have been loved by God with this sacrificial love, how can you go back to a self-centered lifestyle? Paul in Ephesians 5.1.2 says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That's what our life should look like. John 17, 26. How about we go there? Let's look here from Jesus' own mouth. John 17, 26. Jesus says, I have made, and I have made your name known to them, talking about the Father, and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, beloved, I really want you to see this. This is, this is just mind-blowing. What God is saying here is the same love in which God the Father has loved the Son, an infinite kind of love, because he's an infinite kind of God. He poured out this same love on us. And this love that is now in us, it is being transmitted to others as well. So when John says, here we also ought to love one another, he means something like this. Live out day by day who you are as those who are born of God those that know God and have experienced the love of God in the sacrifice of his son. We're simply experiencing and enjoying what we are in Christ when we love one another. After all, God's seed is in us, remember? And God's spirit is also in us. Loving others is just what we do because the love that has rained down on us and now fill us and abide in us, in him. Here's the point. John says all of this not simply to give us assurance of salvation, which is important and, and precisely what these words do. You know, I love others. I love my brothers and sisters. Great, that is an indication that I, I do belong to the family of faith. But the treatment that God has shown us here, John now wants us to show to each other, if the Father has turned aside, and this is the key, if the Father has turned aside his own wrath from us. John wants us to turn aside our wrath from others. Beloved, if God loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. God could have just delayed the weight of his anger fall upon us, but he found another way. Instead of consuming the human race with displeasure, he showed love to the entire human race and sent his son. Now says John, you do the same. Instead of reacting in wrath towards people, hold it back. Find a way to break through in love. Find a way in love of overcoming the sin of the other person. Conquer the sinful resentments and animosities in yourself Overcome the envy, the vindictiveness, the irritability, the impatience that feel towards the other person. 
and remember who you are. You are no longer a child of your own desires. A.W. Tozer called the hyphenated sins, right? We all have this self-centeredness, self-consciousness, self-defensiveness, self-exaltation, self-indulgence, self-love, self-pity, self-pleasing, self-righteousness, self-seeking, self-sufficiency, sufficiency, self-trust, and self-will. None of that. None of that is loving. You see, God sent Christ to demonstrate what love is, is self-sacrificing. And now he's saying, you too, put your wrath aside. Put your anger aside. Deal with that bitterness and love others as God has loved you. I, a passage that really um, comes to mind when I, when I think about this kind of love you know, when I'm helping people um, to deal with conflicts and, and, and really think through how they should love one another is Romans 12. As we get this exhortation here that really boils down to one thing. Whenever we're not loving others, it's just a matter of pride. It is a matter of pride because we know how much we have been forgiven we know how much God has given to us, his only son, and yet we continue to insist on our own way. Chapter 12, verses um, starting on nine, I'm gonna skip a few, one here, few verses here. Let love be without hypocrisy. Above what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another with brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. Now, even toward those that do not know God, verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. 16, should we think too much about ourselves? Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in your mind, but associate with the lowly. Be not wise on your own estimation. Verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but... Leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give what to drink, and doing so, you will heap burning coals in his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is loving others like Christ loved us. And lastly, our love for others brings God's love to perfection in our life, really. The, the more we love others, the more we obey him, we see God's being perfected and us becoming more like Christ, becoming mature. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You see this word seen here is a word in Greek where it's theomenai, where we take the word theater from. It implies a careful observing, a careful watching, a close scrutiny, examination. No person has seen God from up close. I mean, you'll remember if you read Isaiah 6, Isaiah was just undone when he was just seeing a, a theophany of God. He didn't see God face to face, but he was undone. Moses in Mount Sinai, people were in terror when they were in God's presence. 
But you see, people have not seen God, but when they see believers loving one another, they will have this close examination and they'll see God in them. It is a proof that God is continually abiding in you. When my answer to John's question, I do love God, but I simply found it difficult to get along with so-and-so. John really exposes this as a pretext. It is easy to claim to be getting on well with God. He's invisible. You've never seen him. But our relationship with him is a secret one, generally speaking. Easy claims about knowing God may cover up the very real battle we are having with loving people. John is saying here is, you know that brother or sister that is right there in a fellowship, that you see them every day? You can fool yourself that you love God, but it's not so easy to fool yourself that you love him or her. If we really love God, we should take steps to show love to our brothers and sisters. They're not spiritual or invisible as the Lord is. They're flesh and blood, and we should manifest, manifest that love. God remains in us. So um, as we're getting close toward the end here, I uh, want to close with a, a little finding that I, I got yesterday. I got in my detour, a little detour on church history, and it just blew my mind how the church was, was known to be loving. And as I look at you, I look at Grace Community Fellowship, I see your love that you have for one another, and I want to encourage you to excel still more based on what God has done for us, based on what he has made for us, we should do that even more so. So this writing was uh, um, Aristides of Athens. He wrote in the second century, in 125 um, BC. Oh, yeah, AC, sorry. He says, this is the, the, his defense before the king. He says, but the Christians, O king, while they went about and made search, they have found the truth. And as they learned from their writings, they have come nearer to the truth and genuine knowledge that rests than the rest of the nations. For they know and trust God. And here's what happens. This is how they act. I want you to pay attention to this. Would someone visiting us, would someone watching our church say these things? It says, they honor father and mother and show kindness to those near them. And whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. Whatsoever would they do to others should do unto them. They do not do to others. As their oppressors, they appease. They literally comfort those that oppress them. They make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. Further, if one or other of them have bondmen or slaves or children, through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction, their own slaves. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And for widows, they do not turn their way in their esteem. They deliver the orphan, the orphan from him who treats him harshly, and he who has given to him who has not without boasting, they give and do not boast about it. And when they see a stranger, they take him in their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. 
For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees that to his burial. If they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on the account of the name of the Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is among them any that is poor or needy, as if they have no, no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply for the needy that lacks food. Every morning, every hour, they give thanks and praise God for his loving kindness toward them for their food and their drink, they offer thanksgiving to him. What a demonstration of love. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you, Lord, because we, we want to be like those early Christians that others who do not see God, who do not know God, came to know God because they saw how they loved one another. Oh Lord, teach us to love, to love one another in such a way. In your Jesus' name, amen.